The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So my special guest today is Alex Smithswood. He's the CEO and founder of the Embedded Finance SaaS disruptor Weaver. They recently raised a $40 million Series A led by Tiger Global. Other investors include QED, Anthemis, Local Globe, Mubadala Capital, and Seedcamp. So Weaver enables businesses with plug and play financial solutions and make embedded financial services available to any business with a digital presence. So Alex, I stumbled over a few names there, but hopefully got pretty much on point. Welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to the beginning. Well, not the very beginning, but the beginning of your life as a tech entrepreneur. How, when and why did you become a tech entrepreneur? Well, I, I started my career pretty much as an academic. You know, I did the usual route, master's, I did a PhD in computer science. I spent some time doing research. And, uh, you know, in, in the world of academics, you, you get tenure and then, you know, you basically worry about your subject and, and not about job security. To be honest, I, I just felt I didn't want to spend my whole life doing that. There's a world out there where stuff is happening. And... And maybe stuff I have something to say about. So five years after my my doctorate, I got in my doctorate, I, I decided I really wanted to um, start my own stuff. And um, you know, first I, I I got involved in business to to learn a little bit about business through through a consultancy uh, job, and in Cambridge actually, uh, Cambridge uh, UK that is. And within eighteen months, I was launching my first business. So. And that's what's been happening ever since. Good stuff. But um, what actually inspired you? So you did your 18 months in consulting. What was it inspired you? This is a very relatively short period of time. You'd done your academic career. You'd done your very brief consulting career. Your next decision, I'm going to start up a business. Was there something or someone in your world that inspired that decision? The nature of consulting is that you get involved in lots of things, but you don't own any of them. You know, you don't really get to, get to see the the results of, of your good or not so good work, whatever that may be. I think for me, building something of value is is always been the driver. You know, you applying creativity, ingenuity, making mistakes, learning from them. It it takes time to go through that cycle where where you you are actually creating lasting value over over a period of time, and so consulting was a in a way a crash course into the reality of building companies and taking technology and applying it to you know problems that other people might have, but it was highly unsatisfying from the point of view of, of seeing it through and of building on the learnings that you get from from each assignment. So it, it, I had to go and get myself either employed to get involved with a product or a service for the long term, or I had to do my own thing. And I chose to do my own thing, I guess. <laughs> Understood. Let's come up to the present time. 
What is embedded finance? Why do we need it? And why do we need it now? Embedded finance, in a way, is a very, very simple concept. None of us buy financial services because we like to collect and consume financial services. By financial service, I mean this in the broadest sense, right? We, we don't get a current account because we love having current accounts. We don't get a pension because getting a pension is such a cool thing to have. And we collect loans because I've got five loans and, and counting. This is not why we buy and consume financial services. We do it because there's usually another purpose that they help us achieve. Maybe it's being safe when we travel. Maybe it's, it's being secure in our old age that we're, we're going to still be able to have the quality of life we want to have. Maybe it's being able to go on holiday in, a, in an exotic destination and be able to pay for lunch, right, with, with, with convenience. So, so these, are things, these are the reasons why we buy financial services. In another neck of the woods, there's a whole bunch of people building applications, digital applications, to help us do exactly those same things. You know, find a house, get educated, go on holiday. And you would sort of think that the, because these applications are trying to put all sorts of things together. They're trying to put data together. They're trying to put, put different processes that typically would have been done by separate, separate providers. And they're trying to join them up to make our lives easier. So why on earth is in financial services part of that, those kind of solutions? And of course, the reason is, is in a way a very deep cultural divide. In the world of financial services, any innovation is highly permissioned. You need to be given a license to do something. You need to make sure that there are you go through the right governance before you're allowed to make changes for good reason. In the world of software, of course, you can you know, do this anywhere and you don't have to ask anyone's permission. You can just create an application and you can put it out there for, for people to use, to adopt. And these two worlds, while they have a lot to say to each other, actually have very different cultural and, and really kind of almost methodological approaches to, to, doing, um, to doing change. And that has kept them apart. Now, what's happened recently is that changes on both sides have started to bring these two huge industries together. And many problems remain, many barriers remain. It's not a simple thing to do. But we're starting to see the results of that, and the results are delighting customers. You know, everybody remembers their first Uber trip, right? And, and, and how effortless it all seemed. And this is how it happened also in business where, business, where applications for managing your accounting start to extend into dealing with your banking as well. And, and the convenience of that and the ability to do more with less time is really empowering. And so... This is feeding this force of bringing these two very uncomfortable bedfellows together, the world of software and the world of financial services. And our job at Weaver is to try to make this uncomfortable relationship that little bit more easy, that little bit more fluid, that little bit more, you know, productive and engaging. Got it. Okay. And I know this is your third startup. And when we last spoke, you mentioned that it had some learnings from your previous businesses, including this one. I love this phrase, how to go as fast as possible without the wheels coming off. So it sounds like you're building a Porsche or, or maybe a Ferrari, but with a, a more reliable engine these days. So what are you doing this time that draws on the lessons you've learned from your previous startups? It really is a journey and there, has been, there have been many lessons along the way for me. 
I started life as a technologist, right? And, and I made all the mistakes technologists do, which is they have a solution in search of a problem. And they think that just by, just by the fact that something hasn't been done before is clever, it actually has utility in the world. But, you know, that's not a given. And even if it does have utility, you, have, you often have to put layers of non-technical things, the right pricing, for example, the right distribution strategy, the right way for customers to be able to uh, discover it and learn how to use it before it really delivers that utility. And I've become much more, I think, humble about the need for those non-technical factors, if you like, to, to make something successful. When you work about it from the other way, so you, instead of starting with technology and looking for a problem to solve, you start from really understanding the nature of the problem, the individuals behind the problem. You know, what are they facing? What would success look like for them? What are their alternatives? You then start to, first of all, you, you stop thinking about a single solution to every problem because that, that simply is, is, is unviable. And you start putting yourself in the shoes of, of customers and designing the solution you would love to have if you were them. And that's been probably the biggest single most lesson as a technologist building businesses. So this time, when we started the business and we bootstrapped it, we obsessed about who the customer is. And we decided to not have many conversations on the basis that this would broaden the conversation too much for us to do something really impactful for at least one class of customers. And I think that was a really good move. We, we decided to go in a way with the easiest, which is people like ourselves, people, other people business, building businesses that had just got bootstrapped. So, so, you know, we could look in the mirror and see exactly our ideal customer profile. And that's what we did. And, and uh, you know, we there is a certain amount of empathy you, you, you start from when, when, it, when you're dealing with, uh, with a situation you understand well. And that creates a, a very efficient conduit of, of um, understanding on both, both sides. And that's been extremely helpful. That, that's sped up the Weaver business no end. And that's a, and that's a hard lesson I learned from, from my previous businesses. Identifying your ICP was really crucial there and, and everyone else stay away from even if they have a big brand name. That's right. Now, it can't be like that forever, you know, because, of course, there, you know, once you prove the utility of something, and, and I think we are well on the path to doing that with uh, with embedded finance, or at least reverse flavor embedded finance, which we call plug and play finance, then you will want to have, uh, you know, to be able to serve more customers, serve bigger customers, and it will that evolution will happen. But what I think made a huge difference for us to choose that uh, that, that customer segment is that. You know, in, in the first 18 months, we've just uh, gone past 18 months of operations. We have signed 75 deals in the first 18 months, and uh, we've got 40 of them onboarded. Not everyone is successful, of course. We're, you know, we're targeting early stage businesses, so some will lose their way. Some will not get funding. Some will have great plans to conquer the world, and it's more of a whimper than, than a bang. But enough of them are high growth engines to... To, you know, so that cumulatively we are getting this really rapid growth in the activity on our platform. That feeds back into the technology. That feeds back into the way we do things beyond the technology. 
and it matures our organization to the point where we can then serve other types of customers and do it with the authority of having been there, done that. So that I think is the biggest change in building this business uh, as against building the previous businesses. And having people like Tiger Global and Seedcamp on board as investors, is that also helpful in terms of your ICP? I mean, you're targeting the kind of businesses that they're also funding. Are they actively helping setting up meetings with other portfolio companies or are they a bit more passive? For most of our investors, the answer is an emphatic yes. Um, they, they have been a great source of opportunities for us. The beauty of something like embedded finance is it cuts through many other sectors, health, education, logistics, real estate, transportation, leisure, you know, you name it, any service business. And most service businesses are becoming digitized, right? All of those types of businesses are great, and in many cases, virgin territory for embedded finance. So the investors that we have on board see themselves as adding value to these portfolio companies because they're bringing a factor that is transformational to them. And of course, for us, that's mana, right? That's fantastic. Um, that's fantastic fuel for us to, to grow. So um, we're very grateful to our investors. They, they, have been, they have exceeded our expectation in terms of being helpful in, in, in that way in many other ways as well. That's great. Great to hear. Now, you also previously mentioned to me the danger of cloning, hiring people like you, who in turn hire people like them. And you have some concerns, on the other hand, about the danger of going too far the other way, creating too much dissonance by hiring lone wolves who really don't gel with any of their colleagues. So how are you getting the balance right between groupthink and uh, disharmony? I've done both, right? So what tends to happen is that when you when you try to course correct when you try to correct for something you know you're not good at, you sometimes overcorrect. And and so when you know when I started out, it was obvious that it was easy to hire people who are a bit like me, who are technical, who think about the world in a certain way. We could and we could go fast very quickly because we didn't have to communicate a lot because we largely taught in the same terms. And of course. I mentioned how we started with thinking about technology being the driver and, and we ended up painfully realizing it wasn't. It was some other need that could use technology. And, and that was the big downside, that we were all, all be feeling wonderful about what we're doing, except nobody else was. I really tried to introduce in the, in the company, this was my first business, uh, Entropay, people who are very, very different uh, from, from me and the rest. There were some some slapstick stories I would I, I, I would say around complete misconception of how things are interpreted and how they should get done. Some were funny, some were not so funny. The point is you, you waste so much time arguing and you waste so much time trying to have a cohesive sort of group that is really gets the mission, is pulling in the same direction. And that's the other way, right? That's the other direction. I think that's where the, that's where the world culture comes in. I think I, I think diversity is an essential ingredient in building businesses that that are sustainable and that can grow over the long term. But diversity on its own actually can be quite destructive if people don't find great good places of engagement where they can overlap in their thinking and feed off each other rather than fight each other. 
then it actually could be quite destructive. The, the, and, and what makes it work is culture. It's the, it's the active curation of taking different points of view and helping them come together, synthesizing something that's better than the sum of the parts. That takes that actually takes hard work. And it's, it's the biggest responsibility of leaders in the company, not just with what they say, but all the little signals, those things that they frown upon, that they encourage, that they celebrate, that they worry about, these signals are picked up by people in the organization from their leaders. And, and that's what creates culture. So it's hard work. This is hard work, getting diff- people who are different from you, who d- you might disagree with or feel uncomfortable with because they're different personalities, but actually getting them to be part of a rich hive of ideas and and interactions that has ultimately a common purpose. It's fantastic when it happens, when it works. You talked about the signals that people are always picking up on from from the leaders. I've noticed that every time I see you, you've always got a big smile on your face. How do you handle the stress of being a tech entrepreneur during such crazy times? We've had COVID, we've now got this horrendous Russian invasion of Ukraine. How do you stay focused and grounded and always smiling? The world is a dangerous and unpredictable place, right? And if you don't factor that in, when you decide to become an entrepreneur, you are going to be really miserable because that's how, just how things are. You know, you, you, you hope for the best, you plan, but nothing ever comes, nothing ever happens quite according to plan. I lost a lot of sleep when I was building my first business. And eventually I sort of realized that investors invest in a business and I am an entrepreneur with a job to do, which is to take this investment, which is risk capital, focus on really using all of the talents, all of the capital, all of the insights that we can muster. But in the end, we have to accept that plans are only plans and ultimately what we can do is we can learn from things that go wrong and once you can kind of rise above that that it's you know you're actually you're involved in this game of discovery you're involved in this game of learning you're involved in this game of building you stop taking it personal when you get rejection when things don't work out as as they work out and you expect to have and you expect problems to come up there will be problems or, or you know involving members of the team that go through a hard time or because they joined the wrong team. There'll be problems because customers thought they were buying something. It wasn't quite what they thought they were buying. I mean, these things happen all of the time, including some, some, including some things which are can be quite impactful. You mentioned the the the, the war in, in, in Ukraine. So this was something you know that really the world was hoping COVID has been a torrid time for many people, many, many companies. And now we're starting to see the, the sort of the world coming out of that. And lo and behold, we, we have another catastrophic event in the world will be another bashing for, to a lot of a lot of businesses, including including tech startups who are seeing the funding environment really become much more difficult. And, and I can there, you know, there is a line of sight between the war in Ukraine and that funding environment. The impact of the war on inflation. I suppose central banks didn't quite get uh, get to it on time. That probably means interest rates rising. 
that changes the the environment uh, for for demand in in society. You know, in in, in the general economy, it will depress demand with infl- with uh, interest rates going up. That means you know it's a, it's a less attractive environment for investing in startups. So so these consequences come to very much the the immediate place we are operating in. And you know, you know, you you just have to accept that the world is like that, and uh, we will do the best in every circumstance. What we can do is we can use our wits and our intelligence and our energy to really navigate the stuff. And you have to take it in your stride. I think if it were a very straight line, it would be a really boring job, and everybody would be doing it. So in a way, that's it's something to celebrate, right? The fact that the world is such a variable place. That's a good way of looking at it. And when you look forward, I know these are uncertain times, so it's hard to predict, but it's still good to have a vision. So what's your vision for Weaver for 2025 and beyond? We'd like to have picked on a sector that is both at the start of, of, of getting mainstream adoption with this sort of world of digital, the world of financial services coming together. I think this will take a, a decade to play out. It's something very fundamental, you know, the, the idea of having digital applications integrate within them the financial services which we normally buy from separate um, organizations, financial institutions. In the next three years, to, to my, my focus is really on trying to make embedded finance as pedestrian as possible. So in a way, we all expect a website today to have a checkout page if you want, if you can buy something from it. I would like us to be in a world where we should expect as consumers, as businesses, that wherever it makes sense for the financial service to show up when we're using an application, it's going to be there. And the next three years will be around turning the experiments that we're all doing right now into, into success stories and, and proven use cases that will feed back into, into, into common practice. We won't be done with, with the whole embedded finance thing. I think it will take us a decade to get it right when we stop thinking about it, it just sort of thing that happens in the background. But like electricity, you turn on the switch, the light goes out. You know, you don't think about how that works. It will take a decade to happen. But in the next three years, it will move from the experiments that we're all doing at, at, at the moment to banks starting to adopt this as a distribution mechanism. And when they do, then there will be a whole bunch of opportunities that open up for companies like ourselves who are providing the, 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 you know, the picks and shovels to, to make it all happen. And I want to go back in time now. So we looked forward. Let's go backwards. What's the one piece of advice, if you were a time traveler, what's the one piece of advice you wish you could go back in time and tell your younger self when you started out as a tech entrepreneur? Be humble and know what you don't know, I think. <laughs> Lovely. Well, it's been great listening to you, um, getting to know you, listening to your your story and finding out a bit more, well, a lot more about uh, the embedded finance market. I wish you and the team at Weaver huge success. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 